Welcome to Star Trek Age of Discovery. I'm Adele Austin Anderson. And I'm Gary Anderson. And we're a married couple who are longtime fans of Star Trek. Today on Star Trek Age of Discovery, we will provide our reviews of the first two episodes of Season 2 of Star Trek Lower Decks. We'll summarize the plots and then discuss our impressions of, the, of these episodes. We'll end our podcast with recent Star Trek news. Woohoo! So before we begin, please remember our analysis does contain spoilers. So if you haven't watched these episodes yet, you may want to do so before listening to our comments. Now, Gary, let's start off with the synopsis for the first episode entitled Strange Energy. Okay, all right. So the episode begins with a fast-paced action scene in which Mariner is being grilled by a Cardassian officer similar to Picard's interrogation scene during Chain of Command. Thanks to Jennifer, an Andorian crew member who barges into the holodeck, we soon learn that this is just a simulation of a prison interrogation that, that Mariner is using as a workout slash self-help therapy session. Seems Mariner is not exactly happy about her new working relationship with her mother, Captain Freeman. And when the two are together, both women put on a facade that they're enjoying the unique arrangement. Um, neither one of them seems to be very pleased with it, however. Freeman acquiesces to her daughter's whims, although she, she doesn't approve of her lack of discipline and unorthodox behavior, and Mariner isn't getting as much enjoyment out of her side missions being sanctioned now. So Mariner is also working through her feelings of abandonment from former sidekick Boimler, who transferred to the USS Titan at the end of the last season. This basically means Mariner's closest friend on the Cerritos is her mother. Now, these women were not the only people unhappy with these personal dynamics. Commander Ransom resents how Mariner has circumvented the chain of command and taken advantage of her relationship with her mother to disregard his orders, even though he is her superior. This becomes a major issue during a mission when Mariner insists on cleaning up the planet's ancient artifacts covered with grimy pollution. Against Ransom's orders, Mariner inadvertently triggers a beam from one of the artifacts as she attempts to clean it with a sonic device. A beam of strange energies <laughs> hits Ransom and down him with supernatural powers and amplifying his anger toward Freeman and Starfleet for disrespecting him. Now, of course, this situation is obviously a callback to the second pilot shot for the original series um, where no man has gone before. I mean, One of my favorite episodes. That's right. So here, helmsman Gary Mitchell is accidentally endowed with telekinetic and telepathic powers as well as an outside ego that makes him a lethal threat to humans who he feels are now inferior to him. He can only be stopped when his powers are temporarily suppressed and his former best friend, Captain J James Kirk, is able to end his life by causing a giant boulder to fall on him. So in like fashion, Freeman and Mariner are able to weaken his powers by a combination of flattery and... Fierce kicks to the groin. <laughs> and Dr. Tana seals the deal by dropping a boulder on his body. 
However, miraculously, Ransom does not die. At the same time, Captain Freeman and Mariner both admit the inefficacy of their working relationship. Following the end of the crisis, Freeman happily sends Mariner to the brig for insubordination, clearly pleasing both women. Yeah, yeah, strange how that worked. Right. So as a subplot, um, Ensign Tindy is obviously jealous that Rutherford sets up a date with Ensign Barnes, the, the crew member he dated briefly last season, but nothing came of it. Um, she then subjects him to a series of painful treatments she claims is necessary to prevent his death from a potentially fatal condition that only affects cyborgs. Fed up with Tindy's therapies after a while, Rutherford threatens to unfriend her. And Tindy confesses that cyborg ailment and treatments are all bogus. She only did it because she was envious that he was interested in starting a relationship with another woman. Now, although she doesn't say another woman, it's really clear that that's what it is because she whispers to him, don't date Barnes at the, at the right, end of that scene. Right, right. And um, clearly last season when he was experimenting with different roles, right. you know, and he had a relationship with men, right. that didn't seem to be an issue with no, her. No, 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 no. This episode also gave us a brief glimpse at Boimler's experience on the Bridge of the Titan, where he appeared terrified amidst a raging battle with the Packlet, who seemed somehow to have become a primary nemesis for the Federation. And as you know, Gary, the Titan is captained by Will Rock. Really? <laughs> I just I just find it hilarious. That Mike McMahon and the writers have decided to make the pack leads right, like right. a major threat to the this to the year. you're right to the federation <laughs> yeah, right yeah so let's move into our discussion of episode one sure and so Gary what did you, what did you like about it you know overall I find it an enjoyable season premiere episode and you know it, it and the, once again it showed evidence that this show has a memory that it remember that it, that it retains events that happened in the past, that influenced, and I'm not just talking about in Star Trek canon, I'm talking about last season. That's right. You know, or, or the <laughs> or last The last episode. episode. Yeah. So, you know, I mean, I love the fact that they did all that. And, and, and I like the fact that, you know, at the beginning of this season, we have an answer right. to the solution that Freeman and Mariner came up with for their relationship. Yeah. Did it work or not? Well, no, it's not working for, for them Completely. That's right. And so that was a really interesting. And and, and, and the, the other thing I liked was the, the recap of where we, where we are in an entertaining way without being a flashback. So that's that, that, those are the basic things about it. I thought it was enjoyable. Gary, I want to go back to that comment you made about memory okay. and about why it's important. You know, let's take the case of Voyager. Okay. Uh, there was a, a two-part episode that was called Equinox, mm -hmm. and it was the cliffhanger between season five and season six. Right. And in that, uh, in that, those episodes, you had Captain Ransom of mm -hmm. you know, which is ironic. That's the same last name as Jack Ran as as Ransom on. The Cerritos. Well, you know that Star Trek is awfully redundant in its names. You know right, right, right. And what happens is that 
there, uh, the Equinox is a ship that got lost in the Delta Quadrant, mm-hmm. much the same way as Voyager. Mm-hmm. And but they had found a way to try to get back home uh, more quickly. But the way they did it was totally against, you know, what the Federation said. It was immoral. For. It was, and it it was quite immoral. That is, they would take these beings mm-hmm. uh, and they would kill them using them as fuel. Mm-hmm. You know, so this is as low as you could possibly get. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so, uh, and so when Janeway found this out, of course, you know, she told them to stop, and also these beings were attacking them because right. for, for self-preservation, of course. Right. Uh, and so, uh, but they said, no, this is worth it so they can get back home. And so in the end, you know, Captain Ransom does, uh, is killed, um, and he died, he does die heroically. And, and so, but you still have the crew of the Equinox who now have to become um, crew members of on the Voyager, right, right. and so you have these people who did kill other beings, and they all bought in it. They were they all, were, you know, they, were, they, they all they signed no, in. There it. were no heroes there, in that situation. Right, there were right, no heroes, right. and so when you know, so again, the second part of this was the season opener for uh, for season six. You would have liked to have seen, okay, so what happened? What were the conflicts that happened between the crew of the Equinox and the crew of Voyager? Right. You know, do they, do the Equinox people, are they ostracized? Right. You know, how do they work together? And what happens? You hear nothing about the crew of the Equinox ever again. Well, there's one episode. There's one episode, um, and that's an episode with the the Vulcan that was on their crew. Oh. Okay. And he, and it's one where he starts going through the Pung Fa, and the only, and, and he immediately um, becomes enamored with right. Bolana, and that's the that's the storyline. That's the storyline, and that's the only that's the only time you see a member that was part of that crew of the Equinox actually show up again. And then that's it. He's gone. But they never again mention the ethical dilemma, right. you know, I, that, that, that those crews face. Yeah, I, um, I think that, again, we, we want to get back to our review of, of, of Lord Dex, but I think the thing with th- that may have been the motivation behind that is that the writers may have said, well, we already dealt with that story when we were merging the Maquis. Well, they really didn't deal with that okay, story I either. So I'm not going to. You know, they they spent a whole year talking about how that was important. That you know that oh yeah, they had to combine crews because they needed the expertise of the people who were part of the marquee to help run the vo- Voyager their ship because many of their crew members died, uh, and That's true. and so they had to do that, and then. You know, a, a year later or a season later, it was no longer an issue. It seemed no longer an issue. Yeah, about they, they, worked, the, they worked out their problems quite easily. Quite easily. <laughs> well, yeah. anyway, okay, so let's talk about what you didn't like about um, Strange Energies. Well, you know, there definitely were some. And, you know, I'm going to talk about Tindy again, who I talked about last season. So, again... And this will probably be the last time I mention this, but again, it's I doubt the, it. the, 
I doubt it. Again, the writers have done nothing about her Orion identity. She acts like a California Valley girl. The way she talks, the way she thinks. And, and in this episode in particular, you know, like the stereotypical Valley girl, she is self-centered and she's petty. You know, that she would put her friend, you know, her friend Rutherford, uh, through something like this, you know, which was painful. I mean, she tortures him. She basically. tortures him. Right. Why? Because she's jealous of the fact that he is, you know, attracted to another woman when they're supposed to be friends. Right. They're supposed to be really, really good friends. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so then that makes you question Rutherford. Now, Rutherford d- did want to unfriend her. And that's why she finally confessed that, you know, what she was really doing. But you do wonder, well, why does Rutherford still want to be with her? Yeah. You know, somebody who would put you through all of that. Yeah. Okay. Well, the, the only, the, the, my major criticism of the first episode is that it's a very thin plot. And, and aside from seeing Tendi chase Rutherford throughout the ship, the only other thing is the story of Ransom who becomes this, you know, godlike being, and went on, and I think I think that whole storyline goes on a little too long, and 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 I, and I guess what I'm really doing is criticizing, because it follows the plot of where no man goes, before a little too closely. Right. I mean, right. if you think about it, so NBC didn't like the first pilot because it was too cerebral. It made you think and too that, much. And what was that pilot? The Cage. The Cage. Right. It was yeah. too too cerebral. And it had all these layers, which I actually like. Right. <laughs> you know, it had a it had a it had a somewhat depressed captain who was questioning decisions that he had made on a previous mission. Yeah, and that was Captain Pike. Right, right, right. right. All of that was really interesting. Right. And then, and so, Roddenberry's got a next shot at it. And so, what does he does? What does he go for? He just goes for action and adventure. Right. Which leads to oh, we've got we, we've got one crew member who becomes possessed by some new powers becomes obsessed with it and, and then wants to you know kill other people or definitely wield his power over others as like a god right and, and there is another crew member who also be is right. endowed with these powers but she's a little bit more thoughtful you know <laughs> as far as yes yeah. she, she, she's she, at the end she's the one who uh, subdues him a little bit. Yeah. So, and, and, and although that, and although um, Strange Energies doesn't get into that, the whole point is it's still a very thin plot. So he right. he gets these powers, he becomes a threat, he becomes a greater threat, and the and then the whole thing is let's just resolve the threat. And right. So it's, there's no complexity there, and I think that's the thing for me. It's look, I understand this show is targeted towards humor primarily. But one of the things that I have liked about Lower Decks, specifically last season, is that they've had no problem creating complexity within these characters and their interaction. And like you were saying before, they have a memory. So events that occur in one episode have an influence on behavior in in this next or other subsequent episodes. And so I just thought that although I found the episode enjoyable, it wasn't... I guess 
it wasn't the best one for me. Right. That's I agree it. with That's you. It. That's I, it. No, I agree with you on that. So let's move on and talk about uh, episode two, Kayshawn, His Eyes Open. Yeah. And and I think what we're going to see is definitely a contrast. Big contrast. Uh, as far as why we rank this uh, episode as superior. Right. So the second episode of the season, Kayshawn, His Eyes Open, is a fun-filled, engaging romp that you'll want to watch more than once to try to identify the dozens of allusions to many of the Star Trek series. So the episode features two plots. The A plot has Operations Division Officer Jet Manhaver receive a transfer to the Beta Shift and, and quickly butts heads with Mariner as both of them attempt to secure their position as the assumed leader of the Beta Shift. Their conflict is carried over into their culture mission that is designed to assist in cataloging the artifacts on a collector's starship that just happens to have nothing but items from Star Trek lore. There, Jet and Mariner are joined by Tindy, Rutherford, and a new addition to the crew named Lieutenant Kayshawn, the Cerritos' new security officer. This is the first time we've actually seen a Temerian since the TNG episode, Darmok. And Kayshawn has learned how to speak in standard federation, although he sometimes falls back on speaking in metaphor. And so that's part of the humor. Much like a scene from Ghostbusters 2, the ship's security system is tripped and a portrait of the dead collector begins to attack the away team, seeing them as thieves. One of the security devices turns Kayshawn into a small hand pop puppet. Cute, too. <laughs> Jed and Mariner argue about the best course of action until they both realize they are not using the scientific expertise of Tendi and Rutherford to solve what is essentially a technological dilemma. When asked for their recommendations, Tendi and Rutherford come up with a solution that saves them all. Yep, 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 yep. And the, you know, and the B plot involves Boimler and the crew of the Titan. He's sent on an undercover away mission to a mining colony with three of his crewmates to learn if the pack leads are weaponizing Veruvian ore. When it's when their cover is blown, the undercover team faces certain death at the hands of the pack leads. <laughs> <laughs> the others stoically seem to accept their fate. However, when Boimler states that that's not the reason he, why he joined Starfleet, that he actually wanted to make fun, that they make fun of the cultural and exploratory activities that he describes that were part of the life of so many episodes on the Enterprise D, where Riker served as first, first officer. That's right. However, Boimler refutes their disparaging comments. Inspired by stories of exploring the galaxy and meeting new races, Boimler attempts a strategy to get a transporter working so they could get back to the Titan. However, when they do, the transporter malfunctions and creates two Boimlers, similar to what happened to Riker in the TNG episode Second Chances. 
realizing they don't need two Boimlers on the Titan. (laughs) (laughs) One of the Boimlers was sent back to serve under Captain Freeman's command. Back on the Cerritos, Tindy, Rutherford, Mariner, and Jet seem to be enjoying themselves in the crew lounge. They've kind of bonded together, actually. That's right. And Mariner and Jet have made amends, and the foursome seems quite comfortable with one another. That's right. That is, until Boimler returns, and the ensuing reunion appears not to have any room for Jet any longer, oh. which is kind of interesting. Yes. And the ostracized officer looks uh, looks hurt as he walks away. Yeah, it's sad. <laughs> yeah. It, it yeah. was sad. So... Gary, what did you like about the episode? Well, I thought it was a really well-written episode worthy of, of repeated viewing, you know? Yeah. I thought it was much superior to um, the season opener for this for this. That's season. right. And, again, we like the season opener. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. But, yeah. but, again, this was much superior. Because there was more to it. There's more to it. And both of us <clears throat> actually have watched this episode multiple times. Yeah, I mean, yeah. it, it it definitely is worth it. Now, for me, I really like the depiction of Boimler, and this is what we're talking about um, as far as um, making complex characterization. It would have been easy, you know, as they did in the last uh, episode, they show, you know, this quick scene of Boimler on the Titan, and he's terrified. Yeah, he yeah. does not want to be out there. I mean, he's scared to death, you know, because they're in this uh, in the midst of battle, and he doesn't, you know, I mean, again, he does not want to be in that situation. But in this episode, he's able to see, even though he, he and, and the rest of the t- Titan crew, um, when they're, dealing with the packlets, they do think they're going to die. But in the face of death, he's able to speak truth. Yeah. And he says, look, you know, I didn't sign up for Starfleet for this, you know, and he names off all these other things that, you know, Starfleet is known for. Well, specifically and, what Next Generation episodes are right, known for. Right, and, <laughs> and what, you know, what, and the sort of activities they did on the Enterprise right, D. Right, And, and you can see that Boimler, when you look at, you know, at the beginning of the first season and where he's at now, he's really grown more confident in himself because right. this Boimler, uh, I mean, the the Boimler for last season, I don't think he would have spoke up for himself the way this Boimler did. And again, he's speaking up for himself in the face of death. And, and, and after he's been ridiculed for these things. And after he's been ridiculed, you right. know, and it had been easier for him to just be quiet about right. it, but right. he didn't. And he's also the one who's able to use his knowledge to save the day. So he just doesn't give right. up. He's able to uh, think about what he could possibly do. And, and, and he's really drawing on his memories of what, happened on the Enterprise D. Right, 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 yeah. right, right. The other thing I also thought that I liked about it was the relationship between Jet and Mariner. Yes, you know? yes. I mean, I enjoyed the conflict both because they're strong personalities coming, you know, conflicting on different styles of That's leadership. Right. You know, specifically her you know, seat of the pants, reckless leadership, which yep. I think you can say 
would be emblematic of a James T. Kirk. Right. Oh yeah. You know? Definitely. And Definitely. and um his and Jet's alpha dog personality, yep. which I think you can say would be reflective of a Benjamin Sisko. That's you know? right. Right. That's right. So you know, I I like the banter. Um, I would have. I think I would like to see more of Jet, who is being voiced by Marcus Henderson who's best known for his role as uh, Walter Armitage in that awful movie, Get Out. Yeah, we won't hold that against him. <laughs> he's the, he's the, the black man who bolts across, who runs across the field at um, Daniel Kaluuya at the beginning of the movie. Yes, yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 That's his claim to fame. Yeah. <laughs> but I like him much better in this cartoon. Yes, yes. You know? And um, Jet's also listed to be in next week's episode so i'm hoping to see more of him this season yes than we saw last season i i because i think he's an interesting character and i think yes. he also provides some much needed um tension not t- tension may not be the word but i mentioned uh, there is something off of which mariner gets the bounce that's, that's different right. that's different than the energy she gets with ransom ransom is kind of shown as a arrogant Poppin' Jay. Yeah, yeah. I mean, he knows his business, yeah. but he also is very, very self-centered. That's and we're, and right. whereas with Jet, Jet's not self-centered. He's more the right type of fit. He he he's confident about the way he wants to do things, but he he's he's not a jerk about it. That's right. That's right. <laughs> so I'd like to see more of him. I like to, if if we could. Yeah, and and going off of that, I think the episode definitely demonstrates the need for diversity of behaviors and thoughts. Yeah. And that's true in any organization. You know, that's why you don't want to hire like the same type of person because you need that in order to uh, come up with, you know, what what are the best solutions? You don't get the best solutions from listening to your self-talk. Yeah. I mean, or, 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 or people, you know, that are exactly like you. Yeah, you or, a, or a group of yes-men, people who are too afraid to counter, to counter, Contradict right. what you think or say. Exactly. Not, not force you to look at things from a different perspective. They wouldn't have gotten out of there from the PACLEDs if they hadn't figured out that they needed to talk to Tindy and Rutherford, who are not people who necessarily you know, t- try to take the lead on anything. That's right. But they were the ones who came up with the solution. And definitely um, talking about you know listening to other voices, you know, this is the leadership model that is exemplified by Captain Picard and Janeway. Right, right. And that and also Pike, the Pike too. Yeah, yeah right. Pike too. And that they listen to what um, you know, various voices have to say and then they decide what the best course of action right, it is. Right. So sometimes you could maybe make a recommendation and they may not follow it, but at least they do listen to it and they consider exactly, it. Exactly, exactly. Yeah. So um, what didn't you like? Well, there wasn't anything I didn't like about this. I agree with I you. I mean, I thought I, I thought this was a really strong episode. I, yeah. re- I found it enjoyable. I, I when they when they cut away to Boimler, there was still stuff I was interest. I was yep. interested in that storyline because he was really kind of stuck in the middle of a group of people who were all alphas. Yes, yes, yes. <laughs> and then they finally admit that's not the reason why they joined Starfleet either. either. Right, and so. You know, but but they were still willing to stay with it. Right, 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 right. So you know, and, and even his his counterpart, his his uh, double, double, yeah, his clone, 
he wanted to stay there too. Right, so, right, right. So he was so set, he, he was satisfied. <laughs> and and you know, um, I don't know how many of you have been looking on social media lately, uh, but it seems like fans have really taken to this episode. And we noticed that on Twitter, you'll see posts uh, of people, uh, uh, several people who've already made puppets uh, oh, like uh, yes. Kayshawn. And, and people are, you know, are responding, oh, they want one, you know, yeah. and everything like yeah. that. So Yeah, that, we should take a moment to talk about Kayshawn because I really like the fact oh, okay. that they, they added a Tamarian because you're right, that's another race that was introduced in Next Generation and we really haven't seen nothing from them. That's right. And um, although when they did use their speech pattern of speaking in metaphors, it was either as a joke or as a tip from like Jet to show some kind of familiarity with the Temerians. Yeah. I think there's an opportunity here for, again, another perspective. That's if right. If they want to. So, you know, look, again, we know the show is a comedy show, so we're not divorcing ourselves from that. But what I find so exciting is the fact that they've, that the writers, even in this half an hour comedy ship, really try to explore ways of making these characters more three-dimensional. Now, yes, yes. Now, they need to give a little more attention to, still, to Tendi and Rutherford, but yes. I think they've got a real good handle on both Mariner and Boimler, and to a certain extent, you know, I, I think there's a great opportunity with Jet and with Kayshawn as well. Captain uh, Freeman uh, is similar. Yeah. So, you know, there's... I, I'm just looking forward to the rest of the season. I am too. I want to see what happens. Okay, so let's now talk about Easter eggs, since both of these had like a gajillion each. Right. Oh, definitely. <laughs> you know, the first two episodes of season two provided a treasure trove of Easter eggs for Star Trek fans. You know, um, you can easily find a number of sites on the internet where there are articles and there's videos listing all of the the Easter eggs that those people found. I've, there's one on there that says 81 Easter eggs wow. for, for the first one. And then there's then we know of a couple that have found over over 60 yep. for the second one. Right. However, what we want to do is take a moment to cite what we thought our favorite Easter egg was from each episode. And Adele is going to go first. Yeah, so in episode one, uh, I like uh, that they talked about <laughs> The fact that there were supposed to be no interpersonal conflicts among the crew. Yeah, that's, that's Mariner's line. Yeah. So during the opening holodeck scene, an Andorian crew member, as Gary said earlier, interrupts Mariner's program. And in a lackluster way, she tells her the captain wants to see her. Mariner quips, I know we're not supposed to have interpersonal conflict, but I really hate that Andorian. <laughs> <laughs> That's the second time Jennifer has popped up in this series. She 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 appeared for a brief moment in the last season as well. Uh, and, and, and I find it amazing that this Andorian is named Jennifer. Right, 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 right. <laughs> the line references Gene Roddenberry's edict that there should be no interpersonal conflicts among the crew because by then we would have learned how to avoid those conflicts. Yeah, sure. So obviously one wonders how we expected that there would be no conflicts. I mean, Gary and I are married and we definitely have conflicts. What? You know, what? so... <laughs> 
<laughs> so, so as long as there is free will and individuals, there will be conflict. Right, the right. only species that seem to have resolved conflict amongst member, members are the Borg, and I don't think anyone in their right mind would advocate for that solution. And free will is not part of the equation. Right, exactly, yeah. exactly. There's no free will with exactly. the, with so the that, Borg. So that's the reason why there's no conflict right. amongst, amongst the Borg. Exactly. So in episode two for me, when Boimler describes the activities of the Enterprise D in defense of the ship and its crew, he references them catching love disease. Now this is in reference to two different episodes, The Naked Time from uh, the original series and one of the few uh, TNG first episodes I've ever watched entitled The Naked Now. Right. And both the crew catches a virus that makes them act irrationally. In The Naked Time, the infected react with outsized passions right, right. as though they are intoxicated and they behave with, uh, with few sexual uh, inhibitions. The episode was so bad, I'm talking about more of the, the, the naked, naked now, now yeah. uh, that I swore off watching another episode of The Next Generation until a friend persuaded me to give it another try when season two started. Truthfully, season two was only slightly approved, in my opinion, over season one, but I stuck with the series until it seemed as though the production staff uh, got to a place where they made significant upgrades with the production values for the show. It's, a, it's season three that, that that show really kicks into high gear. Yep. Now, for me, my Easter eggs are kind of indicative of my fandom and how I like Star Trek. So, in the first episode, you know, obviously I get into the way Ransom attacks the Cerritos in, in orbit around this, the planet. Because it's very reminiscent of Who Mourns for Ananias, season two episode, um, from episode two from season two of the original series. You may remember... That the god <laughs> Apollo right. is on this planet, you know, basically um, isolated because he's left Earth with his other Greek gods, and all of a sudden the Enterprise comes along and he grabs it with his giant godlike hand, yes. which we see replicated in the cartoon. Only in this case, it's both hands that Ransom grabs the Cerritos with, right. and on top of that, we see his giant head. We saw Apollo's giant head, you know, wait, you know, gravitate in space outside of the the Enterprise, and so you know the, that callback I really enjoyed, and the fact that they did even more silly things, like they had Ransom bite on the ship, yeah, you know, and other yeah. stuff. So that I thought was really cute, and and since he's perceiving himself as a god, I thought that they made a lot of sense. That's so that's my first Easter egg. The second Easter egg, which once again shows my love of the animated series of Star Trek was for 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 episode 2 comes is from the Infinite Vulcan which is uh, the 7th season episode in season 1 of um of the animated series and it's written by of all people Walter Koenig mm. now 
you and this and the reason the thing specifically about that is we see this skeleton, this giant skeleton with a with a blue um, science and medical shirt, you know, ripped on it. Well, that's supposed to be the skeleton of the giant Spock that's in that episode. You, some of you may or may not know if you're a fan of Star Trek but never really watched the animated series, is that of the original crew, originally, only three of the actors were supposed to do voices for the, the animated series. That was supposed to be Shatner, DeForest Kelly, and Leonard Nimoy. And Nimoy refused to participate because Nichelle Nichols and um, George Takei were not going to be part of the voice. He said these are these are the characters that reflect the diversity of the That's show. Right. And if they're not part of it, that kind of undercuts the very nature of the show. That's right. And so he refused to sign on until they were added in. The one actor out of the not not original not season one but definitely season two cast that was taken out of context well and and never given a, a regular job was Walter Koenig. That's right. So Chekhov was not added. So Duhon was hired to play Scotty and then do a whole host of other roles. Right. As was Majel Barrett. She was supposed to do Nurse Chapel and a whole host of other female voices. And they just ignored that Chekhov wasn't on on the bridge anymore. That's right. And when instead they did, they did give him an episode that he wrote. And so the, he was the first Star Trek actor to actually write for the franchise. And this was the episode that he did it. So mm. that all that's all kind of connected in there. And I thought that was that was a really interesting Easter egg. I appreciate the fact that Mike McMahon and the crew continue to go back and mine the animated series right. for interesting little elements that's that they can right. bring into the show. They they do not they do not forget that that show is there and that it, right. that it is actually part of the canon of Star Trek. Yes, you know. So, for instance, in the original series, the only you know I would say non Earthling that was on the bridge was Spock. But in the animated series, you do have. You know, you have Cations, yes. you I mean, who are actually cat-like people. You have you have an Andorian that's yeah. part of the crew. So you have a much more diverse crew on the animated series right. than you did actually on stage. Yeah, on a more diverse intergalactic cr- right. crew. Yeah, right, right. And, and and my final Easter egg, which is kind of covers both, but is not Star Trek related specifically. In both episodes, there's been a slight reference to Doctor Who um, that we've lore that we you know that we've been able to pick up. First off, in the first episode, at one point showing his strength and, and supernatural powers, Ransom turns a number of the aliens on the planet into creatures with his face, which is reminiscent of the. Christmas special from 2009 of Doctor Who, the two-parter, The End of Time. The second episode, where, where yeah, where the, well, in that episode, the master turns these creatures, everybody, all over the earth, into looking just like the master. Um, in the second episode, where you had Boimler suggesting that they reverse the polarity at one point on their, when they're trying to figure out how they're going to fix the ship in this battle, which was kind of a pat solution that was used repeatedly for 
any technological problem that was faced by the third doctor played by John Pertwee. In fact, it became such a joke that you really start seeing people just use let's reverse the polarity for anything to solve anything. If you had a hangnail, if you had a pimple, <laughs> whatever it right. may be. So anyway, that's those are the two things I think that now the fans, now, now the writers are starting to incorporate a little jokes from other science fiction into the show. Yeah, so Gary, let's uh, turn now to Star Trek news. And um, I'm going to start off with some sad news. Oh, okay. Yeah, and that is um, on uh, August 15th, uh, there was a Los Angeles Times feature article that reported that Nichelle Nichols, the original and best Lieutenant Uhura, um, suffered, uh, you know, who, who you know is uh, suffering from dementia, and she remains at the center of a custody battle between her son, Kyle Johnson, who is her current court-appointed conservator. And uh, the custody battle also involves her former manager, Gilbert Bell, and Angelique Fawcett, who is described as a concerned friend. Earlier this month, Johnson sold the California home Miss Nichols purchased in 1982 for $12,000, and he re got a windfall $2.2 million uh, for the sale of the home. And that money was put into Nichols' trust to take care of her needs. Yeah. Now, her son has also moved her to a New Mexico location away from her family and friends who cared for her over the years. Mm -hmm. Only her son and the physician tending Ms. Nichols know of her current condition. That's right. You know, in comments in the LA Times, the reporter um, cited Johnson as saying he's trying to protect his mother's privacy. So we were unable to find any other information on the matter. However, we do hope Miss Nichols lives the remainder of her life with the care and support she deserves. Absolutely. Okay, so in other Star Trek news, there's going to be a documentary, well, bio slash biopic documentary on Gene Roddenberry. Uh -huh. August 19th was the 100th anniversary of the Star Trek creator's birthday. And according to Deadline... The uh, Roddenberry Entertainment took advantage of this milestone to announce that they had been working quietly on a feature biopic of Roddenberry. Already, there's a script supposedly done by Adam Mazur, whose credits include the Emmy Award-winning script for the 2010 HBO film um, You Don't Know Jack, which starred Al Pacino playing Dr. Jack Kevorkian, better known as Dr. Death. <laughs> Now, now producers include Rod Roddenberry and Trevor Roth, who executive produce all current franchise series, including Star Trek Discovery and Star Trek Picard. Of course, none of us know exactly what Rod and Trevor do as executive producers, since no production staff or cast members ever mention the significance of their contributions. Okay. <laughs> okay. Um, however, in regards to the film, they are now in the process of finding a director and actors. And so from what we understand, this will be a, this will supposedly be a, a 
a film based in fact, but also be a hybrid because aspects of it will be more documentary-like. Yeah, yeah, it's going to be dramatized by yeah. actors playing the roles of people. Right. You know, throughout Roddenberry's life and career. So, you, so. if you've seen any historical events depicted on the History Channel, right? <laughs> that's the that's the that's model that's the model they're trying to go for. And you know what, Gary and I were hoping, but uh, we're kind of hoping against hope, is that it would be similar to the documentary that was done by uh, Leonard Nimoy's son uh, on his father, because that really was a very personal, yet even-handed look at his father. I thought so. Yeah. I thought he, you know, he dealt with some of the um, estrangements he had had during his life with his father, some of the difficulties of how his father, his father behaved um, at periods in his life. And um, and and I thought it also t t had a very loving focus on what Leonard Nimoy both brought to the, to the screen and what he eventually was able to uh, come to terms with in regards to his relationship with his children. Yeah, yeah. It was. I thought it was a moving tribute. I thought it was really good. You know, I thought to... every. I thought everybody should be have been proud of what they had done. Right, with that. right. So we're hoping and praying that Rod can do. Likewise, right. on, on his dad. Exactly. <laughs> and uh, we're going to turn now to Le talking about LeVar Burton. Yes. Yeah, we are sure many of you are aware of the drama surrounding the bogus search for the next permanent host of the syndicated game show Jeopardy. Star Trek's own LeVar Burton actively sought to be the host of Jeopardy. He was given a week-long stint and was the number one choice in a fan poll as to who should replace the longtime host, Alex Trebek, who passed away last year. Yet the game show's executive producer, Mike Richard, was somehow given the gig despite scoring low in an audience poll. Yeah, 3%. Yeah, 3% I mean, people. if we were watching Batman, I would say, holy Dick Cheney, Batman. <laughs> um, however, Richards did not have the job long after an outcry about the sham nature of the hosting search came, arose. And then also there was evidence that came up about uh, Richards' past bias lawsuits, uh, sexual assault, and... That well, not made, sexual assault. Well, sexual abuse. There was definitely a case that he walked into the dressing rooms of some of the... Yeah, sexual misconduct. Okay, however you want to uh, yeah. characterize it, he was somewhere where he wasn't supposed to be right, at a time exactly. when he wasn't supposed to be there. Exactly. Um, and then at the... So at the time of this recording, it's not, it's not known what the job is going to be offered to LeVar, um, but we don't think that he will be idle for long, hopefully. At the same time, this whole incident came down. Um, director, producer Ava DuVernay began to, to explore developing a show that would be a perfect vehicle for Labar. So if, he, if, he, if Jeopardy doesn't come his way, he may have a gig with, uh, with Ava. Yeah, or maybe both can happen, you know. Or maybe both can happen. Who, who knows? Right. Okay. And, and then he can do Picard, and who knows? Right. So, so we have um, uh, some other news yeah. that uh, that we were both glad to see. 
So in our last podcast, we said, oh, we doubt if Section 31 is still... Yeah, we were pretty adamant about that. Yeah, so but we have news to con- yeah. contradict what we said. Yeah. So-, so just when we thought the Michelle Yao series, Section 31, had been shelved, a press release seemed to confirm it was still on the table. Viacom CBS released a press announcement confirming the new deal with Alice Kurtzman and his production company, Secret Hideout, to continue the current era of Star Trek series under his guidance. This was news uh, when it broke a few days ago, but something that has been glossed over was the announcement that the long-rumored Section 31 is finally in development with Michelle Yao attached as its star. In the same press release, it was stated that Star Trek Strange New Worlds is getting a 2022 release date. No premiere date, however, was given for Section 31. Strange New Worlds will likely debut in the winter around January or February, while Section 31 could be broadcasting the year following the last season of Picard, which many believe will only run for three seasons. Okay, so here's our last bit of news today, and that has to do with the Saturn Awards. Star Trek Discovery and Picard received seven nominations for the 46th annual Saturn Award. The winners will be announced in September. Ooh! Both Picard and Discovery have been nominated for Best Science Fiction Television Series. They're going up against Doctor Who from BBC America, Lost in Space from Netflix, Pandora, the CW, and the Raised by Wolves from HBO Max. Also, Westworld from HBO. Three actors from Star Trek Picard have picked up nominations in acting categories. Those nominees include Sir Patrick Stewart, Issa Briones, and Jerry Ryan. Joining them are two Discovery actors, Sonequa Martin-Green and Doug Jones. So, in closing... We would like to remind you to share a link to Age of Discovery with people you know who enjoy Star Trek as well. But until that time... Like, subscribe, and follow Star Trek Age of Discovery on Twitter, on Facebook, and at our website, Star Trek AOD, where we offer additional articles on Star Trek canon, interesting side-buyer issues, and other aspects of the show. Also, email the show at StarTrekAOD at gmail.com. But until then, live long and prosper.